Well, without further ado, I'd like to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open up to the Gospel of John, John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We're going to begin by reading from verse 22 to the end of the chapter, even though our focus will be on verse 31 and following. But let's read from John chapter 10 and verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him and he eluded their grasp and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. And he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Well, I think we can say that it's somewhat difficult to get the ruling class to judge justly to assess the facts as they are, to rule in accordance with the law, to render judgment without bias and agenda. Listen to the words of Habakkuk. Quote, The law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. That was true in Israel's day throughout Israel's history, and sadly, it's true even in our day. But the greatest act of injustice and perversion of law in all of human history took place against the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though being entirely without sin, was treated as a criminal, even suffering a criminal's death. Injustice, which Jesus received at the hands of the ruling class of his day. And that's where we find ourselves in the gospel of John, in the midst 
of a heated exchange between Jesus and the religious establishment. In fact, it's so heated that for the third time in John's gospel, they're about to stone him to death. Their minds are made up. The facts are irrelevant. Jesus is a threat to their operation and they want him dead. And so they surround him and and press him as to whether or not he's the Christ. And they want him to state it plainly. Yes or no? Are you the Christ? But this isn't honest inquiry. There's nothing objective about this. This is all about securing what they need to put him to death. They want him to indict himself. And Jesus has already declared he's the Christ. He declared it in John 5, 39, when he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. He declared it in John five forty six when he said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. He declared it in John eight twelve when he said, I am the light of the world, connecting himself, even declaring himself the fulfillment of, of Isaiah's prophecy concerning the light of the world. And he declared it in verse 11 of John 10 when he said, I am the good shepherd, declaring himself the fulfillment of the, the, the prophecy of Ezekiel concerning the son of David that would, that would come and be the shepherd of Israel. But Jesus went even beyond that. He not only claimed to be the Christ, he claimed co-equality with God. He did so back in John 5, 17, when he said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working, making himself equal with God. He did so back in John 8, 58, when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, declaring his eternality. And he does so here in John 10, 30, when he says, I and the Father are one, making himself out to be God. So they want Jesus to declare he's the Christ, and he gives them even more than they're bargaining for. He responds, let me do even better than that. I and the Father are one. But here's what you have to understand. And this is so easy to miss. Claiming to be the Christ and claiming co-equality with God go hand in hand. A proper understanding of the Messiah's identity as revealed in the Old Testament necessitates co-equality. And so by Jesus claiming to be co-equally God with the Father, he was claiming to be the Christ. The Pharisees had a deficient understanding, a a deficient theology of Messiah. And this really comes out in another exchange similar to this one in Matthew's gospel, where they were testing him so as to, to, to lure him into a statement they could prosecute. And after all of their attempts had failed, Jesus asked them a question. He asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And naturally, they said, the son of David. So Jesus said, then how does David, in the spirit, call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And of course, he's both son of David and 
Son of God. And to be the Son of God is to be nothing less than God the Son, and therefore co-equally God with the Father. A claim the religious establishment believed was blasphemous and deserving of death. And so that's where we find ourselves in John's gospel, in the heat of an exchange between Jesus and the ruling class, and they want to put him to death. And so as we come to these verses, verses 31 to 42, we really come to our Lord's final public appeal ahead of the the Passover when he will go to the cross and lay down his life for the forgiveness of sins. You'll note it's December and he's just a few months removed from his crucifixion. And following this conflict, he's going to withdraw again to the place beyond the Jordan where John the Baptist first baptized and he will be there until the raising of Lazarus just ahead of Passion Week. And as we know, it wasn't his time to die. His hour had not yet come. And so to diffuse the the conflict, Jesus appeals to the Jews to think objectively, to judge with righteous judgment. And we'll frame this passage around the concept of an appeal. We're going to see three aspects of an appeal here. The appeal to Scripture the appeal to works, and then finally the appeal to testimony where the apostle John makes one last appeal to the testimony of John the Baptist. And so if you're taking notes, jot down first the appeal to scripture. The appeal to scripture. And we'll be in this point for the the longest part of our time together in the word. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And of course, they did on the heels of the statement, I and the Father are one. This is likely the third time the Jews have sought to stone Jesus. One of them took place in John 8, 59, in response to the statement, before Abraham was born, I am. And there was one that, though it isn't explicitly referenced as an attempt at stoning him, likely took place in John 5.18 in response to the statement, my father is working until now and I myself am working. This was the claim that Jesus made that got the greatest hostility. It garnered the greatest hostility from the religious establishment that he is co-equally God with the father. In their estimation, that claim was nothing short of blasphemy, a crime punishable by death and death by stoning. And so they see the statement, I and the Father are one, as a, a crossing of the red line. They have, they have deemed this to be the, the point of no return. They have murder in their eyes, and that murder is fueled by a false sense of righteousness. And so this is a volatile situation. Jesus is staring at the religious leaders as they have stones in hand to put him to death for blasphemy. An angry mob full of pride and self-righteousness and they believe they're justified before God in seeking to stone Jesus. And there's some irony here. What feast are they celebrating? The Feast of Dedication. Which celebrated what? A rededication, a a re-consecration of the temple to God. Remember in 164 BC, a a Syrian monarch named Antiochus Epiphanes overran Jerusalem and, and desecrated the temple. 
And it was under a revolt led by Judas Maccabeus that the Jews reclaimed the temple. And after reclaiming it, they rededicated it. And so what's the irony? That at the very feast where they're rededicating the temple, they're wanting to kill the very one the temple ultimately pointed to. Jesus has already declared himself the temple in John chapter 2. In verse 19, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up, referring to the temple of his body. And so whereas the temple under the old covenant was critical to having access to God, Jesus is the substance of everything the temple anticipated whereby access to God would be found exclusively in him, and they want to kill him. And notice his response. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? I mean, what calm in the face of hostility. What composure. He's unflappable. And really, he asks a fair question, a question that's intended to broaden the the focus of his claim, or rather the focus beyond his claim, to the supporting evidence. It's only blasphemy if it's not true. And his works testify to the authenticity of his claims. I mean, even Nicodemus, back in John 3, both a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews testified as much, saying, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Even Nicodemus, a, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, could, could figure that much out. And so Jesus confronts them with the reality of his works. And there are three features that I want to draw to your attention in this statement concerning his works. First, note they are many. They are many. I mean, what does John say? That even if you could write all of them down, not even the the books of the world could contain them. The world itself could not contain the books that could be written, John 2125, which only magnifies Israel's unbelief. I mean, just think of all of the miracles that Jesus performed that would have testified to the, the truthfulness of his identity. And they rejected him all the same. I mean, the unbelief is unbelievable. And so his works were many. Second, his works weren't just many, they were good. A word that means beautiful, of excellent moral quality. I mean, just think he restored limbs. He reversed paralysis. He made the mute speak. He made the deaf hear. He gave sight to the blind. We saw that in John 9. He cured leprosy with a touch. Cured all kinds of disease and illness. He even raised the dead. Beyond that, never has a man spoken the way he spoke. Beautiful, wonderful, glorious works. And third, his many good works were from the Father, which is so obvious, which is to say they find their source in the Father. They reveal the Father. They put the Father's character on display. And that should remind you of John 1.18. Look at it. 
Jesus is narrating the Father to us. He is revealing the Father. He's putting the Father's character on display. And, and, and the Apostle John makes this statement in John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, referring to the Son, he has explained him. The Son is exegeting the Father to us. He is making the Father known. He's revealing the, the character and likeness of the Father. And really, there's an amazing contrast as you consider Jesus and his works and the Jews, the religious leaders and their works. The works of Jesus reveal the characteristics of his Father and his works are of excellent moral quality. In stark contrast, the works of the Jews reveal the characteristics of their father and their hearts are full of what? Murder. John eight forty four. Jesus says this to them, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. The works of Jesus validate his sonship to the father and the works of the Jews validate their sonship to Satan. So Jesus confronts the Jews with the reality of his works, that they might consider what his works say about his identity, since they so obviously authenticate his claims. Look at verse 33, the Jews respond, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. So note there, They don't deny the quantity of his works, nor do they deny the quality of his works. In fact, they don't even deny that his works are from the Father. Instead, they're fixed on one issue, blasphemy. Because again, in saying, I and the Father are one, they rightly conclude he is making himself out to be God. Now notice something. They affirm the humanity of Christ. They say, because you being a man... So there's no question about his humanity. Jesus is true man. Their issue is with his deity. They believe he's making himself out to be God when in reality, he isn't God. And the irony is this, that for the astute reader of John's gospel, he has always been God and he made himself man. They believe that he's man making himself out to be God, the reality is he's always been God, eternally so, and became a man. We know this again from chapter 1 in John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so Jesus is going to make them think, riddle me this, experts in the law. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I'm the son of God. Now on the surface, this might not seem like the most compelling argument. I mean, this might not come across to you as a really strong and compelling 
retort to the Jews' charge of blasphemy, but there are two things to keep in mind at this point. One, Jesus is now seeking to defuse the conflict. They have stones in hand and they want to stone him to death. His hour has not yet come. And they want to stone him and he needs to, to tamp things down just a little bit so he can withdraw in preparation for the hour that is to come. And two, this argument here, beginning in verse 34, rests on the reality that the scripture cannot be broken. He's appealing to the authority and inerrancy and even infallibility of scripture. That the scriptures are entirely trustworthy. That they are truthful in all their claims. Jesus is demonstrating a commitment, an unwavering commitment to the authority of scripture. The entirety of his argument hangs on the balance of a single word. I mean, just think, what does he say elsewhere? Matthew 5, 18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The scripture cannot be broken. This is the word of God. And so Jesus is basing his entire argument on the authority, inerrancy, and infallibility of the word of God. It is forever settled in heaven, Psalm 119.89. And so he says again, verse 34, has it not been written in your law? The law which you love, the law which you hold so dear. I said you are God's. I mean, even the way Jesus frames this question implicates them. He, he's on what they believe is their turf. They're the so-called experts in the law. And so Jesus is putting their expert status to the test. And what does he quote? He quotes Psalm 82 and verse 6. A psalm which addresses the judges of Israel as gods, even as sons of the Most High. An address made all the more startling in light of the fact that the psalm addresses, addresses how corrupt they are. In fact, you got to turn there. Turn to Psalm 82 for a moment. And as you look at Psalm 82, and we'll read the entire Psalm, which isn't that lengthy, you can see how even the context of Psalm 82 dovetails nicely with the Gospel of John and specifically where we are in John's Gospel. I mean, look at verses 1 and 2, for example. Psalm 82, verse 1. God takes his stand in his own congregation. I mean, Jesus is at the temple and he is rebuking the religious leaders. Second line, he judges in the midst of the rulers. That word there is literally God's. Verse two, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That characterized the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Look at verse 3, vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. What did they do with the, the man born blind? Jesus heals them, heals the man. What did they do when he confessed Christ? They put him out. They excommunicated him. I mean, this is describing the religious leaders of Israel at Jesus' day. Verse 5. Do not, 
Uh, they do not know, nor do they understand. They, they walk about in darkness. Think of the, the language of darkness in the gospel of John. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Verse 6, I said, you are gods, referring to these rulers, these judges, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like one, like any one of the princes. And so judgment is coming. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. And so Jesus appeals to this psalm, a psalm that in context fits so nicely with where we are right in the gospel of John. And in the psalm, God addresses the judges of Israel as gods in spite of the fact that they were evil and corrupt. And so here's the argument. If God addresses the corrupt rulers and judges of Israel as gods, even as sons of the Most High, how can you charge the one whom he sanctified and sent into the world as a blasphemer because he said, I am the Son of God? Since Scripture cannot be broken. And given the excellent moral quality of the works that Jesus did, I mean, the argument is from the lesser to the infinitely greater. And I want to point out three features of the statement back in John 10 that that Jesus makes in this argument. One is that though they're attempting to re-sanctify the temple, these fallen human vessels, Jesus had been personally sanctified by the Father. And I say it that way for effect. Personally set apart. They want to set apart and reconsecrate the temple as fallen, wicked, corrupt jewelers, uh, rulers rather. Jesus has been sanctified and set apart by the Father himself. Second, Jesus has been sent into the world. What does that imply? Pre-existence. That he existed prior to being sent. And then third, I want you to notice this. Jesus equates his status as being co-equally God with the Father, with his identity as the Son of God. Look at that. That's the way the whole argument ends. Because I said, I am the Son of God. What was the statement that, that ultimately launched the whole issue? I and the Father are one. When Jesus declares, I am the Son of God, he is simultaneously declaring, I am God the Son. There's your proof text. If you've ever wondered whether the Son of God necessitates deity, it does right here on the lips of Jesus. To be the Son of God is to be God the Son. And so this is masterful, what Jesus does here. His calm, his composure, the argumentation. He, he gives them a riddle to put them on their, their heels a little bit to tamp things down as far as the intensity of the whole thing. It's marvelous. And I want to give you just two brief points of application. One, who is it that's guilty of blasphemy here? It's the religious leaders. Who are they blaspheming? Both God and his son. To blaspheme the son of God is to blaspheme the father. The ones that are guilty of blasphemy are the religious leaders of Israel. Which means what? They're guilty of their own charge. And beloved, that principle is on display over and over and over again in our day. 
The accusation oftentimes being levied against someone else is the very accusation the person leveling the accusation is actually committing even in the moment they make the accusation. The accuser is often guilty of their own accusation. And two, what does Psalm 82 teach? It addresses judges. It addresses the corruption of those judges. And what does it say about the way that that corruption ends? Judgment. Every single judge on this earth who functions as a judge and renders judgment will be subject to a final judgment for every judgment they make. Every single judge and every judgment will be accountable for every act of judgment they render as judge. And so take courage, beloved. At the end of the day, the score gets settled, the, balance, the, the, the books get balanced. God is going to bring justice to everything. Amen? So that's the appeal to Scripture. And tempers the moment just enough for another appeal. They're on their heels just a little bit, processing this riddle. And then Jesus having them now in that place makes a more direct appeal to his works. And obviously some of the ground for this has already been laid in point one. And so secondly, jot this down, the appeal to works. The appeal to works. Verse 37. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. Look, if Jesus could provide no supporting evidence, if Jesus didn't have works to authenticate his claims, if everything was riding on his declaration that I and the Father are one, then they would be justified in their unbelief. But since he does do the works of the Father, and since his works are marvelous and many and of excellent moral quality, their unbelief is inexcusable. And so he appeals to his works. You're taking offense at me and my claims. Assess the works. What do the works say about my identity? What do they say? Well, one, they say he's the father's representative. Look at the middle of verse 25. The works that I do in my father's name. These testify of me. Jesus did what he did in the father's name. That's the the language of an ambassador, a representative. He is on earth representing the Father. Two, that the Father is the source of his works. We saw that in verse 32. Jesus says, I showed you many good works from the Father. And so since the Father is the source of the works, the Father is working through the Son. As Jesus does what he does, the Father is working through him. And three, his works demonstrate that the Father and the Son are in union together. This comes out in the next part of verse 38. So that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. 
really a statement that you're going to see in a moment is entirely consistent with the statement that I and the Father are one. And so if the Jews would deal honestly and objectively with the facts, they would see that Jesus is undeniably from the Father, his representative, that he is in the Father and the Father in him. That the Father is the very source of his works. And that on account of recognizing that, that they would come to know and understand all of this. Jesus is appealing to the works as evidence, and the evidence is undeniable. And so again, second part of verse 38, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. This is literally so that you may know and continue knowing. And we could ask the question, know and continue knowing what? And here we're going to park for a little bit that the Father is in the Son and the Son in the Father. Or you could say it like this, that the Father is in Jesus and Jesus in the Father. Where in language is the language of union. And so you have two distinct persons, the Father and the Son, who possess the same divine essence because there's only one divine essence and are in union with one another, both co-equally God and one with each other. Now, this language comes up again in John 14, and I want you to turn there. Because you're going to see that, that Jesus builds on this notion of, of being one with the Father. And this comes in the exchange with Philip. Philip's being slow to believe. He's, he's asking Jesus to, to, to show them the Father. And Jesus is going, Philip, you don't get it, do you? Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. The works that Jesus did testify that the Father is in him and he in the Father. And, and Jesus, even here in John 14, begins to expand this idea. Look at verse 20. It says, in that day, referring to the sending of the Spirit, you will know that I am in my Father, and note this, and you in me, and I in you. And so not only is the Father in the Son and the Son in the Father, but we too, as you know, are in the Son. We have union with Christ. When you read through the New Testament and you see all of the statements about being in Christ, that's union with Christ. But Jesus goes even a step further in John 17. Turn there. On the heels of praying in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He prays in verse 20 and following. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Even as you father are in me and I in you, we've seen that already. But know this, that they also may be in us 
so that the world may believe that you sent me. And so not only is the Father in the Son and the Son in the Father, and not only are we in the Son by virtue of our union with Christ, but we are also in the Father, having union with the Father. A union that speaks to oneness. And what's amazing in that statement is you also have the reality that that Jesus is connecting this oneness. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The whole statement of oneness is connected to union. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he is declaring that he has union with the Father. This is all built into the same reality. Now stop for a moment and think about this. If you have union with Christ, and by virtue of even your union with Christ, union with the Father, then you have full and complete access to every spiritual need you could ever have for the Christian life. You have every spiritual power at your disposal to live the life that God has called you to live. Union with Christ. Union with the Father. And we can even say union with the Spirit. Since the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one God, three persons, to have union with one is to have union with all. We have everything we need in the indwelling Spirit to live the life that we've been called to live, and we have a glorious future that we anticipate. I mean, just think about these realities coming to fruition. Union with Christ and being in God the Father and being in the Spirit. These realities are going to come to fruition in the new heavens and new earth. The eternal state, when we dwell with God for all of eternity and are in the presence of his very glory. All of this we have in Christ by virtue of believing on him and trusting in his name for the forgiveness of our sins. And so Jesus appeals to his works as testimony of amazing realities concerning his identity and relationship to the Father. And so what's their response? Well, back to John 10, verse 39 Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Their response is rejection. They wanted to seize him and take him into custody, but again, his hour had not yet come. And you may wonder, why didn't they believe? I mean, how could they reject such a clear testimony? How how could they deny Christ as he pointed to the very reality of his works before them, which they could not deny? How, How could they not have come to believe in him? Well, we see it back in verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. He declares, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. The reason they rejected him is they were not of his sheep and they had not been given eternal life. They had not been granted repentance and faith. 
And so they were left in their spiritually dead condition, both unable to believe and unwilling to come. And so in Jesus' final public declaration, he appeals to both Scripture and his works, both of which the religious leaders reject. But there's one more appeal. And this actually comes from the Apostle John. This time appealing to the testimony of John the Baptist. And so if you're taking notes, just briefly jot this down. The appeal to testimony. The appeal to testimony. Verse 40. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. And he was staying there. And so Jesus returns to the place where it all began. Verse 41. Many came to him and were saying, well, John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. John had long been since dead, beheaded by King Herod. And though John didn't perform any signs, the clarity and veracity of his testimony was so strong that people could say everything he said about Jesus was true. He was a faithful witness. Jesus was everything John had said he would be and more. So, verse 42, many believed in him there. In contrast to the religious leaders. And so the question for you is, what's your response? Do you embrace the testimony God the Father has given concerning his Son? Do you look at his works and believe that because of those works, the Father is in him and he in the Father? Do you accept him as the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world? Do you you look to him as the one who laid down his life for the forgiveness of sins? Do you confess him as the one who, who conquered the grave? rising on the third day? Do you recognize him to be the one that is now seated at the Father's right hand, awaiting that time when he would return to bring judgment upon the ungodly? Or do you stand with the religious leaders, rejecting the Father's testimony concerning his Son, rejecting the testimony of John the Baptist, the the testimony of John the Apostle, the testimony of all the apostles, the testimony of those whose lives have been transformed by the resurrected Christ? Do you stand with the religious leaders who are unwilling to assess the facts as they are, who are confronted with the truth and reality of who Jesus is, but nevertheless still hate and reject him? There's only one right response, and it's to come to Christ by faith to recognize that all of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And that without the righteousness of Christ, you will stand before him on the the day that you die and give an account for your life with with no coverage, with nothing to, to, to appeal to. And you'll be under the judgment of God where every violation of his law will be brought to account. And the just judgment of Sinning against a holy God is an eternity in hell. You don't want to go into that moment without the righteousness of Christ. And if you would believe on him, if you would look to Jesus 
and embrace him as your Lord and Savior, if you would trust in him for the forgiveness of your sin, you will be given a righteousness not your own. It will be counted to you. And you will stand before God holy and blameless. And when it's time to, 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 to face the judgment, you will make one appeal and it will be to the righteousness of Christ. And so I would just urge you today to believe on his name, be reconciled to God. The father sent his son to be the savior of the world. And if you would trust in him, you will be saved. And so look to him this day and experience the forgiveness of sin and regeneration and come into this glorious union with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit.